You're listening to episode 24 of the Secret Origins podcast, which features the origins of the Blue Devil and Dr. Fate. This episode is going to sound a little different than others, at least in the beginning. A few days ago, David Sopko, who was a fan and friend of this show, passed away. I never really met David. I never got a chance to really speak with him, but we talked on Facebook for several months. He liked the show, he provided feedback on episodes, so when I found out that he was doing a podcast about Blue Devil, I invited David and his co-host, Justin Barlow, to help me cover Blue Devil's secret origin. All three of us were really excited about doing the segment, and we scheduled a recording session for November 1st. But on Halloween, I got a message from David that he was in the hospital. He'd been feverish for about three days, so he checked himself in and wouldn't be able to record with us on that Sunday. I knew how much he was looking forward to it, so I asked if he wanted us to postpone a week. David said he would be okay if Justin and I recorded without him, but it would be nice if he could be involved. That was the last time I heard from him. Within a few days, I got word that David's condition had turned critical. He developed a kind of... I'm not sure the actual medical terminology, but a kind of viral infection, I think, that afflicted his brain, his heart, his respiratory system, the the worst possible things that it can attack. Specialists performed a pretty invasive surgery, and David was placed in an induced coma after that. I followed his condition sort of peripherally through his wife's status updates. She was very positive, and I assumed everything would turn out well in the end. Justin and I agreed the best thing to do would be to record the segment, to do it well, and to have as much fun with it as possible. That's what David would have wanted, and it would be good listening for him during his recovery. Sadly, David did not recover. He died on Wednesday, November 11th, leaving behind a wife, two children, and from everything I've seen, a whole lot of friends and family who loved him. Justin told me about a fundraiser to help David's family cover some of their medical expenses. That fundraiser is still active, and I will place a link to it in the show notes for this episode. When we recorded our segment, Justin and I addressed David's then-still-critical condition, but we were both very encouraging and very hopeful. I've cut more than usual from our talk, which is why I said this episode won't sound like others. The Blue Devil segment is going to sound a little choppy at the beginning. I've also decided not to play any promos during this episode, and I'm not going to read listener feedback at the end. The comments that I received for episode 23 were amazing, as always, and I will address those next week on episode 25. Earlier, I said that I never really met David. We were less than 24 hours from what would have been our first phone chat when he got sick. We were just Facebook friends, which I used to kind of scoff at, as though that type of cyber relationship was less legitimate, less real. But the world we live in, the world I live in anyway, all my friends are on Facebook or Twitter. That's how I talk to people. That's how we interact. Some of the people who have been on this podcast are closer to my heart than people I work with and see every day. A friendship is not diminished if you've never been in the same room. I, of all people, should know that because I met my wife online. I fell in love with her before I ever laid eyes on her. I should probably tell her that someday. 
My point is, I never met David. I'll never have the chance to talk to him over Skype or in person, but I will miss him. We'll be back in a second with the secret origin of Blue Devil. by 20 hounds Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around Sit out one but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep tonight Ran into the devil baby Lonely 20 bills Spent the night in Utah In a cave up in the hills Set out running, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. I ran down to the levee, but the devil caught me there. Took my $20 bill and it vanished in the air. Stop running, but take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my first guest this episode is one of the hosts of Shout at the Devil, a Blue Devil podcast. Please welcome Justin Barlow to the show. Welcome, Justin. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And this one was the first story to be edited by the legendary Mark Wade. Justin, when did you first discover the Blue Devil? Pretty recently, actually. I didn't get into comics until a few years back when a friend of mine got me in just after Sinestro Corps, but a little, little bit before Blackest Night. So I was following that as it happened. And as I was reading back issues, I got into Identity Crisis and Infinite Crisis. And there were a few scenes with Shadow Pact characters, and those just interested the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. So I decided to read back up on Shadow Pact. Loved every single bit of it. And then my takeaway from that was the Blue Devil was really cool, so I started getting his main run. And I've just been enjoying it ever since. I've read not all of his appearances, but the entirety of the run. And I've read all of Shadow Pact. I've read a few events with him in them, but those are usually things that I've only read once, like Underworld Unleashed. The first time I saw him was in an issue of, I think, Showcase 93 that I picked up just because it had Brian Boland drawing Catwoman on the cover. And it looked nice. And there was a story in there with uh, Blue Devil and the Justice League, which at the time it was like right around the death of Superman era. So it would have been Blue Beetle, uh, Guy Gardner, and maybe Fire and Ice. 
After that, I, I kind of knew of him. I, I would pick up a few issues of Shadow Pact, and I just couldn't help but compare him to Hellboy. And that was the era where he had just, like, the t-shirt and the blue jeans, and it was the more kind of stripped-down, casual, lummox type of blue devil I found. That one didn't really appeal to me. But every once in a while, I would see these house ads with Firestorm and Blue Devil. And, like, the tagline was always something like, we're making DC fun, or we're bringing the fun back to DC. And I just thought there was something about that particular pairing of Firestorm and Blue Devil that that seemed really, really cool. Like, I would love to see those guys as as a proper team-up, as a kind of comic-adventure duo. And I feel like after Crisis, the stories that we could have got with Firestorm and Blue Devil were replaced by the Booster Gold Blue Beetle team-up, the Blue and Gold, which was a great team-up. I mean, I would never want to take that away from any of those fans, but... I still kind of wish we'd gotten a little bit more of that Firestorm Blue Devil action together, besides just a couple of team-ups. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think they would have been a great team-up, other than when they actually did team-up, <laughs> because that crossover was not the best. The Irredeemable Shag mentioned that when he was on episode 4, talking about Firestorm. The one time that they did cross over was not a very well-written story and uh, suffered not the greatest art, considering the really stellar artists that had been on Firestorm and Blue Devil up to that point. I would have to agree. I mean, the artists that were on there were pretty good. It was just, without going too much into the issue, I feel like there was probably just too much going on. All right. Well, the Blue Devil first appeared in a special preview story in Fury of Firestorm issue 24, which came out in 1984. That's right, while most of the characters appearing in Secret Origins debuted in the Golden and Silver Age of comics, Blue Devil had been around less than four years at the time this issue of Secret Origins came out. Right after his sneak peek in Firestorm, Blue Devil got his own series by writers Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin, and artists Paris Cullens and Pablo Marcus. The series lasted 31 issues. During that time, Blue Devil also appeared in The Fury of Firestorm, issues 46 and 47, which we were just talking about. DC Comics Presents, issue 96, and several parts of The Crisis on Infinite Earths. After the crisis, my knowledge of Blue Devil's appearances is a lot more spotty. I know that he did have a short run in Showcase 93, and then, of course, he was in Shadow Pack for a while in the 2000s. Unfortunately, the character received a rather comprehensive reboot in the New 52. For my money, the less said about that, the better. I don't know if you wanted to spend more time about that, but uh, anything from his history that I'm really leaving out that you wanted to mention? Uh, nothing too specific. I mean, he is probably one of the few characters that I follow that has died and returned a lot. <laughs> like, in my notes, I just have at least three times where he... Uh, let's see, he dies, he gets returned, then he dies again and gets returned as an actual demon, but sort of enslaved by Faustus because he had one of his bones. <laughs> and then after he got his freedom, he sacrificed himself and then came back again. So he, he dies a lot. And as far as the New 52 goes, I had ideas for what would have been way better than they actually did, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, it was it was squandered. There were some cool concepts, and I think they could have done it differently and had it go way better and actually done something with the character. Mm-hmm. But he has been very sparse in the New 52. I mean, he had a brief appearance in Forever Evil Blight, 
where he was pretty much kidnapped in an attempt by magic-y dudes to use something to stop the thing that had threatened Earth 3. <laughs> and that was about it. I liked the new 52 idea of pairing him with Black Lightning. I thought oh, I that love- was a good idea. And, and it goes back to my thinking of, of making him part of a sort of comic action duo with Firestorm. Because I feel like that... He's always going, even though he predates the character, he's always going to be compared to Hellboy because Hellboy is bigger and more successful. But I think the way of avoiding that is making, like, giving him a, a partner that they can have a little bit more kind of wacky, lighthearted adventures. You can delve into serious stuff, you can delve into scary, supernatural stuff. But I think at the heart of it, it should be kind of uh, have the sort of whimsy of an Indiana Jones adventure. And so when they were partnering him with Black Lightning, I was like, cool, they can do something with that. But I just, again, like so much of the new 52, it felt like they were just, what is the easiest sort of reboot, reimagining of this character that we can do? Well, we'll just make him look like a monster and take away anything really complicated about him. And It was squandered is the least <laughs> I'm going to put it. I, I loved him and Black Lightning as a team-up idea. And they had a very brief appearance when Justice League was doing a recruitment thing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which character. I think it was Blue Devil put that it was either one or both. I mean, it was either both of them or nothing. Yeah. All right, folks. Secret Origins issue 24 was cover dated March 1988. But according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the issue would have hit the stands on November 17th, 1987. Almost 28 years to the day this episode of Secret Origins podcast will come out. The cover was done by Keith Stan Wilson and Sam De La Rosa. What do you think of this cover, Justin? I actually really like it. I'm not too familiar with Dr. Fate, so I don't know if that is actually a stock image that they basically put together two images, but I really like it. Like Dr. Fate just peering in on Blue Devil and Blue Devil showing up in the crystal ball fighting something. <laughs> I, I Yeah, it's... It's a fun cover. I like both of them. I like uh, you get a sense of character of them. You get the sense of the the power and the mystery of Doctor Fate as he's beholding this sort of spherical orb, this like looking glass. You've got Blue Devil trapped inside, looking uncomfortable with this sort of smirk, like he's ready to just smash, bust his way out of this thing. Um, it's pretty wonderful. Yeah, it is. It's it, the only thing that I feel like. It, I don't know what it is. I wish. There, I wish maybe it's the colors. I just wish there was something more about the coloring of the covers or the background. I wish there was something to give it a little bit of pop. Maybe if there was some kind of smoke or or kind of misty air effect around the bubble. I like the idea of it. I just wish there was a little bit something else to, like I said, to give it a pop. I agree, and I think part of it is like I don't think they wanted to go with the light background because there's a lot of yellow in Doctor Fate's costume. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the, I mean, half of the background is black, and right. I think that that just, I think it's a bit of a disservice to it because, like you said, there's not enough pop to it. Right. Secret Origins did not have a lot of great covers, um, but I definitely think this is one of the better ones that we've had so far. So, yeah, I'm I'm really digging it. So. All right, Justin, are you ready to tell our listeners the Secret Origin? or not-so-secret origin as it may be, of the Blue Devil? 
I am ready to tell our listeners, as the second page describes it, the all-true, previously recorded, publicly known, heretofore fully revealed secret origin of the Blue Devil. (laughs) So we start off with a couple of kids wanting to watch a VHS tape of Blue Devil, and their looks-to-be teenage babysitter is saying, absolutely, I'm in charge, and we're spending the night on Il du Diable. And then Kane pops in, saying that they're too old to believe in the fairy tales of the movie, and he's going to tell them the real story. So we get shots of the would-be movie interspersed with shots from the actual origin. It starts out as the movie's framing device of they're going to create this blue devil to secure the tombs, and then Kane shows up and starts bashing on the TV, saying, no, no, that's wrong. And we see the actual stuff. Looks like some of it is either from or before the Blue Devil preview in Fury of Firestorm of Dan working on the suit. And as we keep going through, we get him showing off his feats of strength, lifting up a golf cart. And all they're saying is, ick, mushy stuff. And they're thinking Kane ruined the movie. He's saying, no, this is reality. It's human drama. And it keeps cutting back in between the movie with an Indiana Jones reference by a woman calling the man with her Idaho. And then Kane keeps thumping the TV saying he has to get it working right. And then we see the actual origin of Wayne and Sharon going up to the temple in similar outfits to the movie characters. Putting the skull mask into the panel that opens a door and lets out the demon Nibiros. And he is not a very nice guy. I'm just going to pop that in there. (laughs) So Nibiros is free after being 6,000 years confined. The kids are starting to get a little worried. They say, actually, it's pretty much like the movie, except the monster didn't sound so much like Ronald Reagan. It shows that Kane is actually plucking all of these images of the story from Blue Devil's brain as he's sleeping, which is a neat concept. And then we cut back into the origin story of everybody convincing Dan he has to fight Nibiros because nobody else can. We get a much more condensed version of the fight with Dan throwing things at Nibiros and then Nibiros blasting him with occult beams that get him stuck in the suit. We pop back out to the kids who are acting it out themselves and then saying, then he kicks Nibiros' butt. And Kane says, sorry, Jerry, it was yarg. And then he just lay there for a while, looking like an overdone meatloaf. And Dan gets up. They end up resealing Nibiros after a little bit more fight, but not a whole lot. Dan almost gets trapped in there with him until the rest of the crew pulls him out because what is Blue Devil without his supporting cast? And then we get bits and pieces from the rest of the series as he realizes that the mystic blast had welded the costume onto him and he had become an actual blue devil it shows his meeting with superman a rematch with nibiros and it shows the trickster and eventually his own creepy corner of the house of weirdness where he resides to this very day afterwards we get a little cute scene finishing the origin but revealing that the reason he has all those images is because of Dan's dreams. Because Dan walks in in a bathrobe with the trident, says, you better not have messed up the cable, Kane, or you're paying the reconnect charge. And then he says, but what he told you is true, and as for this clown, he's nothing but a pain in the neck. 
he throws Kane out the window and then sits down with the kids saying, we've got us a movie to watch. And thus ends the very well-known origin of Blue Devil. Yes, the publicly known and previously recorded. That might be my favorite part, how they just introduce it as that. I think it's interesting because the character was only introduced a few years previous to this, that it was nice that they got the original creators, Mishkin and Cone, to come back and write this story. And I think they were kind of having a little bit of fun with that. It's like, well, we we just wrote his origin story four years ago. Do we really want to tell the same thing again? Do we just really want to repeat that story when people can just go out and find it without without as much difficulty? So I think it was it was kind of cool for them to kind of create this framing device with Kane retelling the story and telling the kids, no, you might not have heard it the exact way, or or the way you think you heard the story might be a little bit off. And I mean, it opens up certain ways for them to kind of retcon their own work or make corrections or. or or consolations for the things that they had already written about the character. I agree. And the main thing I love about this is the actual origin stuff is pretty faithful to what we were shown before, including a couple of new scenes. And we get something that we didn't really get a whole lot of in the main series because it was really only a story bit for the first uh, couple issues. We actually get scenes from the would have been blue devil movie, which I'd watch just based on what they showed. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite aspects of this character, is that he was supposed to be in a movie. This was supposed to be a movie character called Blue Devil. And you've got this character, Dan Cassidy, who is the, the stuntman costume prop master building this suit. And then through, through some other kind of weird mumbo-jumbo, they open the door to this demon hellscape, and we get Nebiros coming out. And Nebiros sees Blue Devil, or sees the costume, and thinks it's one of his demon enemies. <laughs> and sort of through this m- weird mistaken identity, lashes out at him, and through his curse, doesn't kill Dan Cassidy, but traps him within the suit. See, the best part for me, he fights him because he wants dominion over the Earth. Mm-hmm. But even in this preview, I mean, in this secret origin and in the actual issues, he keeps referring to him as a little demon brother, because he thinks he's just a little family member. Right. And I love that Nibiros just is kind of clueless as to the fact that, oh, this isn't a real demon. <laughs> That's credit to Dan Cassidy's work, that he made a costume that was good enough to fool a, a legitimate demon. It's a pretty uh, pretty entertaining first couple issues, and I'm really happy with the way this origin was retold. How faithful, how closely does the origin mirror what we saw in that preview in those first couple issues? Until I read some of the dialogue, I actually thought this was just basically a cut and paste. Mm -hmm. And then I read some of the dialogue and realized it was different. Like, the first time Nibiros calls him brother in this, he says, Brother, geez, you make a little money and suddenly everyone's your long-lost relative. I don't remember that from the first issue, but I love it. (laughs) So it's evident that not only... Did they redo some of the art and make some new panels, but they rewrote some of the dialogue, and it's very faithful to both the character as intended and the story as originally written. This was the first story in the Secret Origins line that was edited by Mark Wade. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this was his first credit at DC Comics. This was the first thing he did, Um, and he's actually mentioned here on the page as boy editor. 
I hadn't realized that that was why. I thought they were just, you know, poking fun at him. But that's pretty cool that that's his first DC credit. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. What did you think of Ty Templeton's art? Because this was also one of Ty Templeton's first things for DC, or first things in comics, I think. I don't think it quite holds up to Paris Cullen's The More You Look At It, because for me, there will be no other iconic Blue Devil artist besides Paris Cullen's. But Ty Templeton's got some really solid art in this. Like in the framing sequence, when we see the kids, it, it does have much more of that kind of cartoonishness that I think Templeton was very much known for. When I think of Ty Templeton, I was that he had a great uh, four-issue elongated man series that was really good. But then when he dives into the actual story, like when we see Idaho and like this whole adventures with the with the demons and the temple, I, I think it's a little bit closer to Paris Collins' style. I think he's he's oh definitely. Yeah. I love some of the small bits that he snuck in. In that very first or second page where Kane has Nibiros, you know, reaching his hand out of the TV towards the kids. If you look down towards the bottom, you see that the parents have left apparently a lit cigarette, among others. But the pack says quick kill on it. (laughs) And there's a mug for world's best dad and just a bunch of little things that you aren't going to notice on the first view. Yeah. I do think it's some pretty solid art in this. And he definitely gets closer to Paris Cullen's style and the actual origin stuff. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about Blue Devil's supporting cast and like the friends and the other people on the set. Tell me a little bit more about these characters. As I said, he's kind of nothing without his supporting cast because they were such an integral part of the series. But I mean, Idaho is based on Wayne Tarrant, who is a temperamental character, flash, well, not flash in the pan actor, but he had some big parts and then not so big after that. He's one of the lesser characters. The blonde that you see over and over is Sharon, his off and on love interest. There is the kid known as Gopher, whose name I can't remember right off the top of my head, but he was basically a kid that was a set assistant and eventually became the Kid Devil character. Mm-hmm. And Marla, who is a pretty sad character because she is one of Dan's best friends and his boss. And in the Underworld Unleashed story that I mentioned having very few good things to say about, uh, <laughs> that is when he actually became a demon the first time, or at least lost his soul, because he was promised fame in exchange for one small act of destruction and the act of destruction was destroy an unmanned electrical station in the desert and he figured well there's nobody there it'll be harmless it turns out to cause a plane crash that kills marla which that tragic story ends up sending a bunch of movie offers his way (laughs) so i mean there are more characters there is a cameraman called norm that is just a in the very first issue in the fight against Nibiros, as soon as Dan gets knocked out, he says, well, I got to do something about this and just drives a cart or something at, or no, it's a bulldozer if I'm remembering right. He just drives it at Nibiros with no hesitation whatsoever. And the fact that he's got supporting cast that will just jump to his side like that, it's pretty awesome. And... A few of them don't get many appearances. Like, Wayne gets a little bit more of a story. As I said, Gopher becomes Kid Devil, Marla dies, and that is what gets Dan to lose his soul and get famous. And Sharon is the on-again, off-again love interest. But he has a few of those. He ends up, uh, he at least once kisses Zatanna, and there's some flirtation between them. 
And he just gets this regular host of actual comic book guest stars and then his supporting cast. And it's just neat to see back and forth because Gopher is this kid that just believes he can do no wrong. Marla is his, as I said, best friend and hard-ass boss. Like, she'll come down on him about budgets, but she's also there for him when he needs her. You mentioned the part where uh, Kane is sort of drawing these images directly out of uh, Blue Devil's sleeping mind. Uh, We get this really interesting on page 9 and the third panel, and this will, I think, be interesting for the fans of the Who's Who podcast because it sort of looks like they were trying this serpent effect where you you clearly have the drawn image of Blue Devil sleeping in the bed with all the demons, and then this weird kind of pinkish background something going on that that I think they're trying to That is Nibiros going on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to kind of... Yeah, okay, now that you mentioned it, I can kind of see the shape. I, I get what they were trying to go for, but maybe the actual panel is a little bit too busy that you lose the shape. I would have to agree, because when I first read through this book... I actually thought that the copy I had gotten had, you know, some kid or whatever or some amateur artist had gotten to it. And then I actually looked closer and realized what it was. Right, right. But yeah, at first I did not realize that's what they were going for. And I do think that panel is too busy. Right. Yeah, I thought it was a printing error. I think they needed to spend a little bit more time with that and kind of to, to really define what it was we were looking at. Especially because part of that serpent overlays the dialogue of one of the demons. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of iffy, but it's one of the few panels in here that I actually don't like. <laughs> the, the rest, I'm pretty pretty well sold on. Then we need to get to one of my favorite parts of this whole story, which is Dan Cassidy's sideburns. <laughs> uh, okay. Those I'm are down. some intense sideburns. That is like pure 70s Hollywood. Yeah, He's got some mutton chops going on. Yeah, he does. It's pretty intense. What I think is sort of great about this character is I actually think there are there are a couple of different ways that I can see you playing with this type of character. And I think they're both equally valid and they would be equally interesting. The first is more faithful to what you have, which is he's this hard luck stuntman uh, who, who creates this suit for this big name star actor, somebody like 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 a Tom Cruise type of guy, like an A list celebrity, um, and he builds the suit for the character that he's going to wear in this Blue Devil action movie. And at the last minute, the star, the A list guy, just says, "Nope, I don't want to wear it. It's too ugly. It's too complicated. I'll be hot. I'll be uncomfortable. Read my contract. I'm not getting that suit." You put it on, and I'll just do the voiceover. They have them have some fight or something where the director just convinces Dan to put on the suit himself and just do as be basically a stand-in for one shot. And that's, of course, when Neberos attacks and everything, and he ends up getting trapped in the suit. So you always kind of have that relationship where he was just doing one good thing or, or he has that resentment for the actor. That's kind of the built-in backstory. Another way that you could approach the character is... Dan wasn't the the stuntman. He didn't make the suit. Dan was the actor, and he could be this very vapid, arrogant, clueless Hollywood celebrity who just puts on this costume, doesn't know what he's doing, and he's very, very vain, very concerned about his appearance. 
and then he's doomed to sort of be trapped in this suit that he can never take off, and that would be sort of the humbling experience. I think that would be a bit more of the Marvel-style approach to the character, because it would have more of that sort of tragic pathos that you would get from a Marvel character. I actually agree with that, and I even had thoughts about what they could have done with the new 52 version, yeah. because I, I had there were some concepts of it I liked. I loved him teaming up with Black Lightning, yep. and the suit he was wearing in that was not actually something he created. It was that he worked at a movie theater, and it was... A, it felt like a second skin and gave him these cool abilities while he was wearing it. Mm. And turned out to be the actual skin of the demon Nibiros. And DC completely wasted that by Nibiros trying to get it back and failing, and it just goes back to Dan. What I thought would have been cool, and forgive me for indulging in this, is if they had let Nibiros get it back, let Nibiros just whoop Dan's ass and... Basically, Black Lightning saves him, keeps him from dying. And afterwards, they you know write about Dan just being distraught over how the events went, you know, having to have his life saved, not being strong enough, and end up making his own suit that's a combination of technology and magic mm-hmm. and going forward from there. Still teaming up with Black Lightning because that was just a really good pair but actually give him some character development, make him work for his suit rather than just finding it in a theater full of mystical objects, which is another device they never used because that was the premise laid out in DC Universe Presents was that his grandpa's theater had all these mystical artifacts. They never directly said it, but they very strongly implied it. There aren't many characters that do blend the the technology and the magic aspect. I mean, Doctor Doom—that's that's kind of his whole shtick. But certainly on the hero level, you don't see many. I mean, I think they try to they try to simplify it more often than not, and kind of keep it one or the other, which is sort of Blue Devil's thing. I mean, he he created the suit as a bit of technology. It had artificially created strength and everything. But then the sort of zap, the whammy that Neberos casts on him sort of makes him more mystical in nature than than the technology. I think he is one of the few heroes, probably across both big two companies, but definitely in DC, that can pull off mixing magic and tech. Mm-hmm. Did they explain his trident in the first story, or is that later on? The first trident, yes. They explain pretty well because it's just one that he made. They even have it in the Zero issue, although it has some bugs to work out at that point. Uh, his trident is another piece of gear he made for the movie, mm-hmm. and it's got like a jetpack sort of thruster, and it's got all these neat bits of tech in it. And eventually, he like after he becomes an actual demon... The trident he's armed with, I believe during all of Shadow Pact, if not most of it, is the uh, trident of Lucifer, which he uses to return escaped demons to hell. But yeah, this first trident is entirely his invention. All right. Did you have any other final thoughts about this origin story? It's a pretty solid one, and it's one of the few I've actually read out of Secret Origins. Most of what I follow from Secret Origins has been listening to your podcast. But that's mainly because... You don't have to flatter me. You're already well, here. <laughs> well, it's it's. trust me, if I was going to flatter you, I'd do it Shag's way of being mean and pretending I didn't like you. Because <laughs> we all know that's how Shag treats his friends. But, yeah, I mean, I love the way it 
incorporates a bunch of different elements and some of the panels that should be too busy they fit like his workshop scenes that's the way a stuntman workshop probably looks i don't know any stuntman so i can't guarantee that but i mean he's got blueprints and he's always working on something in the shop it shows that in all the scenes it shows and i just noticed in that panel of the workshop there's like a poster for a werewolf in etobicoke Something like that. Yeah, I I was trying to figure out what that word was, yeah. That sounds like a place either in Canada or Africa. And I'm going to Google this really quickly, but... I'm going to guess with the palm trees that it's not Canada, or it's either a palm tree or a blood splatter on the poster, so... It is in Toronto, Canada. Oh, okay. So I am really wrong. All right. Yeah, a werewolf in Etobicoke. So I wonder if Ty Templeton is from Ontario. I wonder if that's an inside joke maybe he put in there or one of the writers is from Canada. I think Gary Cohn is uh, from the New York area because I know that in a couple of things he's talked about how him and Paris basically met in New York and Philadelphia a lot. So I think he's from that area. Tom Templeton is from Canada. Okay. I looked that up. All right. So yeah, that's probably an intentional little goof. For those who are observant, I figured it was just a made-up word, like a movie reference to something okay. like an American werewolf. Well, no, that was way, just any werewolf movie, really. Right, right. The framing device interspersed with the actual origin is pretty solid. Like, you don't always get, you know, one page that's one thing. Uh, I'm looking at, oh... I think, yeah, page nine, the one with the serpent image. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, first panel, we have the actual origin with Nibiru's coming out. And then the second panel, we go back to Kane, and we're in the real world for the second and third panels. Then we just have Kane's head on top of two more origin story panels. So it's a neat little framing device, and it is bouncing back and forth really well between that and the actual story. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm I'm pretty well sold on this uh, on this origin. We talked a little bit about the sort of different eras of Blue Devil, from the classic era when he had his own series to the Shadow Pact run, and then the New Fifty Two. Like, what is your favorite? Like, what 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 do you think is the sort of definitive Blue Devil? Well, I'm always going to have a soft spot for Shadow Pact because that's where I first really got into the character. But I'd have to say probably the main series, just because it's so fun to read. DC was right in that they're making comics fun again. Mm-hmm. And it's I've read all the issues at least once, and a few of them multiple times. And it is just a fun run of comics. It has probably eclipsed Shadow Pact as my main, but in general, I love both of them. I love Shadow Pact for Detective Chimp. So. Who doesn't love Detective Chimp? <laughs> for readers who might be coming to Blue Devil for the first time or who, who want to revisit the character, what would you recommend? What are some of the best Blue Devil stories? I'd say probably, well, definitely the first, ooh, I think, six issues of Blue Devil. I wanted to say five, but I think five and six are where he teams up with Zatanna, so you don't want to cut that story off halfway. Okay. They are releasing a showcase presents Blue Devil in January. Okay. So you know that's something to pick up. I'd say my main recommended stories are just the first at least half a dozen or more of the main series, and if you can't find all of it, then read as much Shadow Pact as you can. If you want more on the story, 
Otherwise, I wouldn't recommend it. Underworld Unleashed and Day of Vengeance, because he has at least some parts in Day of Vengeance with the Sentinels of Magic. Mm -hmm. And then Underworld Unleashed is a huge part of his story that leads to him, as I said earlier, becoming famous through the death of one of his friends. But in general, there's a lot of really good Blue Devil stories. And if you can find it, I'd just say pick up the entire main series and the entire Shadow Pact run. So those would probably be my main recommendations. I thought that they were going to release that Showcase Presents Blue Devil last year. Uh, and and they held it back, but I'm I'm definitely hoping that it comes out early next year. You think it's coming out in January? I believe the Amazon date says January. I want to say 26th. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. If anybody out there is super familiar with Gary Cohn's birthday, he did mention on Facebook that it's around his birthday that it comes out. Awesome. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's sometime late January. All right. Well, Justin, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. Where can folks find you if they want to hear more of your thoughts on Blue Devil? Well, I haven't been as active lately, but I am on Twitter at Justin Barlow, and occasionally I'll talk about it on there. But the best place is going to be the Sympathy for the Devil Facebook page, which is for the blog that I used to run before we started the podcast and David's Blue Devil Archive page, or just find the Shout at the Devil podcast, which is shoutatthedevil.podomatic.com, I believe, or we're on iTunes. All right, well, thank you very much, Justin. Thanks for being part of the show. Thank you for having me, Ryan. You've been a gracious host, (laughs) and I take back at least three horrible things Shag has said about you. I don't know if I have that power, but I'm doing it anyway. All right, I appreciate that. I'll make sure that I, I, I will earn those back from him the next time that I talk to him. So. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? How the music can free her whenever it starts and it's magic. If the music is grooving and makes you feel happy like an old time movie, I'll tell you about the magic and the free We're back, and whether you can believe it or not, I'm actually very happy to be joined by the irredeemable Shag from (laughs) FirestormFan.com and the Fire and Water podcast. Shag, you are here primarily to talk about the secret origin of Dr. Fate, but before we get to that, I know that you are also a big fan of Blue Devil and that you are friends with David Sopko. I think maybe the best thing for us to do is talk about David first and then get into the comics, because that's really what this show is about, and it should be fun. What do you say to that? Absolutely. Uh, David was a, a very fun guy. He was always he, he was a, a big supporter of the Fire and Water podcast and always loved to, uh, I guess the expression is, take the mickey out of me. He took shots at me all the time. So he definitely was about the fun, so we should try and keep this upbeat if we can. David was a great guy. Um, you, I, I'm sure you've told the audience already at home what's happened, and... Um, 
and it's very sad. I mean, he's, he's survived by his wife and two children. I actually had the chance to meet David. I did a, a world tour, if you will, recently as I was traveling around the country for work. And I got a chance to stop in Michigan, and he and I had breakfast. And we sat down at this nice diner that he likes. It's his favorite place for breakfast. And I got to tell you, I mean, we talked a lot about comics. Um, in fact, he showed me this incredibly gorgeous, hardbound volume of all the Blue Devil comics he had had made. It's so, so beautiful. Anyway, so we talked a little bit about comics, but a lot of it was we were just talking about life. We were talking about family, our kids. And, man, he was just beaming with pride over his children. He just – his kids are, are, are – sound like great kids. They sound really sharp. They got great accomplishments. And he was so proud of his kids, which made me feel so good. I mean I'm a parent as well. I know you, you know nothing about this because you're you know, a spawn of Satan and you hate children. I so do. That's true. <laughs> but uh, anyway. And, but another thing that amazed me was as we were sitting there eating – again, this is a place at David Regulars. People kept coming by the table and saying hey to him and talking to him. I mean, I was sort of astounded how many people knew him. He was clearly a loved and uh, cherished member of that community. And that just, you know, at the time I just thought that's pretty cool. And now in, in retrospect, it's just it's very heartwarming to think of how much love there was for him out there in that area. And um, he was a great guy. Now, I worked with him on a lot of stuff. I mean, I originally met him through Fire and Water Podcast. He was one of the founding members of the Legion Super Bloggers with me. He was also a founding member of the Ultraverse Network with me as well. And then I, I'm going to brag for a minute here. Uh, Justin and David produced the Shout of the Devil podcast. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. I, <laughs> both of them got in touch with me about they were interested in doing Blue Devil podcasts. They got in touch with me separately. So I started a little Facebook thread and said, basically, David, meet Justin. Justin, meet David. Go make a podcast now. Now, it took them about a year and a half to make it happen, but they did it. <laughs> so uh, I, he's a great guy, and we really appreciated all his support of the Fire and Water podcast. He was definitely you know, one of the family. He was one of our nuclear subs, and uh, he'll be missed. So. He was very supportive, very engaging. I, I didn't get that chance to meet him face-to-face or even even talk to him and hear his voice, but... Yeah, I'll, I'll miss him too. So, okay, let us get into uh, well the the first subject then because you did bring it up, Blue Devil. Woohoo! Now, as we discovered in the previous segment, first appeared in of all places in an issue of the Fury of Firestorm. What's that? Never heard of it. <laughs> well, there, there's a website that you should check out. Um, <laughs> now, would I be wrong in assuming that that was the first time you met the character? You are wrong, sir. Okay, now, believe now, it or not. Now, am I really, honestly wrong, or do you just have to say that contractually? <laughs> it's a little bit. It's both, actually. Um, you really are wrong. Uh, believe it or not, I was. What, when did this come out? When, uh, 82, 83, somewhere in that realm. Mm-hmm. I uh, I was late co- to the comic world as far as my friends were concerned. They were all very far ahead of me. They had been reading New Teen Titans when it launched. They were reading X Men for years and all this stuff. And I was coming in in the middle of Secret Wars. So all this cool stuff, as far as I perceived it, already happened. And I remember telling a friend I wanted to get in on the ground floor of a new book. I felt like I was missing the beginning of everything. And he said, hey, there's this new book that came out this month I hear a bunch of kids are talking about called Blue Devil. You should check it out. So I actually picked up Blue Devil number one before I ever bought a Firestorm comic. Hmm. So technically, my, my fandom of Blue Devil came first. So bought number one, immediately fell in love because it, that is – such a fun comic. If you ever come across a copy of number one in a 50 cent bin, and it does happen a lot, because I, 
I can't tell you how many copies I own of that comic. Like every time I find it in 50 Cent Bin, I feel like it needs a good home. So it comes home with me. I have many copies of Blue Devil number one. Hell, I should mail you one. Although I don't think they get mail in Vermont anymore. But um, So it's super fun series, especially the first six issues are an absolute blast. Now, interesting story about Blue Devil. You know, you mentioned it started in Fury of Firestorm and Paris Collins drew it. Paris Collins wasn't the original artist they had in mind. When Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn created the concept of Blue Devil, the way it worked was there was an editor in the DC office who asked him to pitch a series. And they said, look, Steve Ditko, yeah, Steve Ditko has been hanging around the offices lately looking for a project. You got anything you can pitch Steve? So they came up with this Blue Devil concept because he's very much Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very much mm-hmm. got a lot of these different you know, aspects of stuff that Ditko likes. And so they, they tried to come up with a character they thought – Ditko would love because he's also got a little bit of Blue Beetle in him. You know, it's, it's a lot of Disco-esque. And Ditko looked at it and said, nah, no thanks. <laughs> Probably because, you know, he had done that kind of thing before. And so he passed on the project. Maybe, and it wasn't, on it, maybe it wasn't political enough for him at that point in his career. You know, that's a very distinct possibility. Yeah, maybe it was just a little too lighthearted. <laughs> and Honestly, it's probably a good thing he did because Paris Collins came on board and it made the book fun. Yeah. In fact, I've got one of the um, – what do you call them? Point of sale posters that says, you know, making comics fun again. And it's got a Blue Devil suite, you know, jumping across the thing. It was never in an issue, but it was a great house ad and it makes a great poster. It's, they were so much fun. Loved the, that comic. Now, if you want a lot more information on the creation of Blue Devil, there's a lot of different places you can go. There's a couple of really great back issue articles. You just go to go to tomorrow's and, and Google black, back issue. I can't remember the issue numbers off the top of my head. I apologize. But one of the issues, I actually get credited in, which is pretty cool. Because there was a time there, before I ran firestormfan.com, uh, I ran another website, which is still out there, called onceuponageek.com. And there, I started posting some Blue Devil stuff. And I reached out to Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohen and said, hey, guys, I love your stuff. Could I interview you? So my buddy and I, Ravenface, we actually interviewed Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin for like almost two hours. We talked about Blue Devil and Amethyst and had this great conversation and and learned a lot of this stuff. We rehashed a little bit of the the back issue article, but not a lot, and just talked a lot about the character and had a great time. It's still out there, by the way, if you want to hear it. I always meant to throw it in a Fire and Water podcast, release that as one of those one day. Maybe I should. But then I developed this relationship with Gary where he actually started sending me materials he would find that he wanted to get out to the public, but there had no venue. So Once Upon a Geek also became the repository for the original sketched thumbnails for Blue Devil Number 1 that were done by Gary Cohn himself because he was an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they sent me – and this, this just blew me away. I couldn't believe this. They, he sent me the original proposal packet from 1983 that was given to DC, their pitch. He sent me a copy of their pitch to DC, and I scanned all the images and put it up on, on Once Upon a Geek. Now, there was a back issue article. A guy referenced all this stuff and used it in that, so you, you might be better off just looking at the articles than reading my website. But either way, there's some really cool early images by Paris Collins that have never seen print other than in that, in that packet, and um, just gorgeous Blue Devil stuff. God, I can't get enough of that character. He's so much fun. When I heard uh, Justin and, and David were going to be uh, scheduled to do this podcast with you, I was so jealous. I was thinking, I should do the whole issue. But <laughs> Blue uh, Devil and Dr. Fate, two of my absolute favorites. That would just be too much. Too much shag? Yeah. What did you think of this origin of Blue Devil as it was retold in the story? Oh my gosh, it is so much fun. Now, Blue Devil, I, I mentioned Paris Collins earlier. He drew the first six issues of Blue Devil, mm-hmm. then came on Alan Kupperberg, who did a nice job. But it, it was missing a little bit of the magic 
that Paris brought. It's not a knock against Alan. That's just a compliment that towards Paris. The, this origin itself, the reason where I was going with this, is this origin by Ty Templeton is so much fun. I mean, Ty Templeton is the perfect artist for Blue Devil. He captures the fun. He captures the spirit. Kane looks just incredibly awesome and wicked, and the expressions are so much fun. And uh, now, did you catch this when you guys talked about it earlier? Calvin and Hobbes is in this. In, is it in the second panel? Well, it's it, well. It, the first page. There's a little boy who's wearing a red and a red shirt with black stripes, and he's got and he's got spiked of, hair, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's got a stuffed target, tiger under his arm. Yep. And he's throughout the issue. It's it's Calvin and Hobbes, dude. <laughs> I mean, Ty Templeton was just having an absolute hoot with this, and. It is a really good representation of the first issue. I mean, there's a lot of fun. And then they throw in the bits from the actual Blue Devil movie, which are hilarious. I, I, this, this origin is a sheer joy. I think it's one of the absolute wins of the Secret Origin series. I'm, I can't wait to listen to the first half of the show to hear what you and Justin say about it. If you say anything other than it's fantastic, you both are absolutely wrong. No danger of that, because we were both pretty high on the story. Cool. Well, I got one more plug to make. Um, Diablo Frank, you might have heard of this guy. He's, he's stunk up your show a couple times. He and I got together and did an episode of the Fire and Water podcast, specifically episode number 113, where we actually covered the Blue Devil 16-page preview. Mm-hmm. And we had a pretty lengthy conversation about Blue Devil. We had a lot of conversation about the character and the development, and I thought it was a blast. So if you, if you, if you want to stop listening to Ryan for a while, which I totally understand, feel free to check out Fire and Water podcast episode 113 on the Blue Devil 16-page free preview. Maybe I'll put a link to that in the show notes or maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, I'm thinking it's going to be more of a not. Now, one thing that I, I was asking you, maybe you would know about this, because you were talking about how they were originally pitching this. Mm-hmm. Now, in the back matter of this issue, when they're talking, who was it, Pete Sanderson or whoever, one of the editorial it was, it was Pete, yeah. Um, he's mentioning how this concept, before it was in, in Firestorm, it was originally going to be in one of their like mystery anthology series. Mm-hmm. And it was Len Wein who kind of shepherded it and said, I think this has a little bit more more oomph than that, that this could actually be a thing. Do you think that's the reason that Kane is sort of the, the narrator or the, the sort of gateway into this, just because it, they were kind of making that connection? Was Kane a character in the series? Like, Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay, he was. Okay, I yeah, didn't know after, that. I don't, I don't remember how many issues it was, probably the first 12, 15 issues or so. Uh, Danny moves to the House of Weirdness, not the House of Secrets or House of Mystery. Okay. He moves to the House of Weirdness. And Kane is the one who lives there. And so Kane is, is, is a reoccurring character all the way through the series at that point. So, yeah, that, it makes perfect sense for him to be the narrator here. Okay. All right. I wasn't sure about that. I thought that maybe might have been an homage or a send-up to, uh, no. to the fact that the story was originally going to be in something, not House of Mystery, but something like that. That may be ultimately why they brought him into the main series. Mm-hmm. That may be the, the sort of a nod there that, that that's why it ended up. By the way, Kane has the best line in the whole thing. Where he goes, mm, sibling, sibling rivalry. I suppose it's as old as, why, it's as old as me, isn't it? <laughs> That's the best line of the whole book. <laughs> I love it, these guys. Now, there are other interesting things to talk about. I mean, there was, at, towards the end of the series, they had a revamp planned within the series, like a soft reboot within the ongoing, where it was going to be a lot darker and a lot more uh, n- n- demonic and, and, and angels and devils kind of stuff. And it got scrapped before they did that. There was a couple other relaunches that almost happened with Blue Devil. Uh, did you guys mention Gary Cohn and Paris Cullen's new project they're working on, New Devil? Uh, no, we did not. There's not a lot out there. Just keep your eyes peeled. It's going to happen sooner or later. But every once in a while, you'll see Gary Cohn or uh, Paris Cullen's drop 
a pitch picture or two on Facebook of uh, the new devil. Something to watch for. Is it for DC or is it an indie project? No, it's, an in, it's an indie project. It is not a continuation of Blue Devil. However, they are drawing a character who jumps around and has horns and looks totally boss. So I, I, it, it is not a Blue Devil related project, but it does appear to have some of the, the funness of Blue Devil. Let's put it that way. So a Hellboy ripoff. Got it. Dude, no. <laughs> this, this project looks sweet. Trust me. It looks good. All right. We will definitely look for that, but uh, let's move on into the second origin story in this issue, which would center on another favorite character, as you have mentioned. Woohoo! Dr. Fate. Yes, sir. Why do you like this character? What is it, what is it about Dr. Fate that draws you into it? Well, Diablo Frank... Uh, and actually, by the way, if you listen to the Fire and Water podcast... Oh, jeez, you really, really should if you want a good show. But anyway, uh, I actually repeat... Some of the same things I'm about to say on this week's episode, oddly enough, because Dr. Fate came up. So if you heard some of this before, you know, so be it. Uh, Diablo Frank really summed it up best where he said, Diablo Frank is a fan of the way Dr. Fate looks more than reading the Dr. Fate stories. And there's a lot of people that way because Dr. Fate looks totally boss. That helmet, the blue and yellow, the costume design, the, the, the fingers, you know, in the magical pose, the onks. He has an amazing look, an amazing iconography. Mm-hmm. The first time I came across him was actually drawn by Jack Kirby in the Superpowers miniseries. Oh, the, actually, okay. actually, Superpowers 2, I should say, the sequel, Electric Boogaloo. And I bought it because the Firestorm was in it. And then here's this Dr. Fate character roaming around. I do remember I had been familiar with Dr. Fate, Dr. Fate just from, like, Crisis. And I remember the Superpowers 2 miniseries blew my mind. I'm like, how can Dr. Fate and Firestorm be on the same Earth? I don't understand! Because <laughs> Crisis hadn't ended at that point. Anyway, so it's... That was my first exposure to him. He looked really cool. He did a lot of cool magic. So I think my passion just comes from a lot of it is his look. I like the the whole Egyptian Ankh sort of iconography. And magic has an appeal to me in like the superhero type sense. I like magic in a superhero sense. I don't like magic in the whole love solves everything sense. I don't know if you, if you follow what I mean, but a lot of time magic stories just come down to the power of love. It will save me. And all this, you know, somebody kisses and well, in the story we see it tears, tears from a woman onto a guy suddenly makes him more powerful, you know, but I don't like that kind of stuff. I think my sentiments probably echo what Frank said. <laughs> and I, I agree with Everything that you said about the look of the character is awesome. I I think the first time I saw him was probably the toy, the superpowers toy. Yeah. But I agree, like there's just something about that look that it's and it's a strangely like timeless look. Like when you see him in the post crisis Justice League, the Giffen Dematis Justice League era, mm-hmm. he doesn't look out of place with that group. He doesn't look like a golden age Earth two character thrown into the wrong world. That's a look that can transcend really any sort of like boundaries in terms of time or place as far as the comics go. So there is something about it. And I like the the sort of all-powerful magician. Like you said, I love the, the Ankh symbiology and everything, the kind of the Egyptian motifs. All that is great. Where I run into trouble is sometimes the way he's written, specifically when I'm not sure who's in the driver's seat between <laughs> Kent Nelson or Naboo. Okay, uh, and that's that's usually kind of what throws me. And and we can get into that more a little bit later after we've gone over the story. I do I do want to have a discussion about that in the back end, and also Doctor Fate through publication history. Mm-hmm. I was actually just going to get into that. So uh, as always, I'll throw out my notes on the publication history. If I forget anything, like the you know zero hour fate series. 
<laughs> which please, I can, please do forget it. <laughs> I conveniently forgot to put that in my notes. That's okay. Doctor Fate made his debut in 1940 in the pages of More Fun Comics issue 55. He continued to appear in More Fun until issue 98, published in 1944. After only eight months of adventures, Dr. Fate became a charter member of the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics issue 3. However, he left that team book with All-Star issue 21, also published in May of 1944, the same month as his last Golden Age appearance in More Fun. Twenty years later, Dr. Fate joined his former Justice Society pals, now designated the Heroes of Earth 2, in the Justice League of America issues 21 and 22. Over the next two decades, Dr. Fate appeared pretty regularly in the annual JLA-JSA team-ups and the revitalized All-Star Comics and All-Star Squadron, as well as sporadic yet pretty consistent adventures in Showcase, Backups in The Flash, and Adventure Comics, and other Earth 2-based books until the Crisis on Infinite Earths. After that, Dr. Fate appeared in the Legends miniseries and became a founding member of the new Justice League of America. Soon thereafter, Fate got a four-issue miniseries by J.M. DeMatteis and Keith Giffen, which saw the mantle of Dr. Fate fall to a new host, or rather, hosts. And after that, many, many people became Dr. Fate. <laughs> I've got it all chronicled. Men, <laughs> women, children, and they kept on and dying. Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> after this story came out... I don't know, it seemed like they couldn't get a handle on who Dr. Fate should be. Uh, what, what were you thinking? Well, let me, let me cover some of the more publication stuff, and then I'll address that question. So uh, the first appearance, by the way, we should mention that it was Gardner Fox and Howard Sherman that created the character. Yep. And we didn't get Dr. Fate's origin until after about a year he had already been publishing. That was in Morphin Comics number 67. Right. And interestingly enough, in Morphin Comics number 72, which is about a year and a half after he started publishing, the character changed considerably. His helmet... They cut the helmet basically off at the bottom, revealing the bottom half of his face. He became a half helmet, and eventually he lost the cape. He became bo- basically boiled down to a, you know, again, half helmet, no cape, bulletproof, strong guy. He wasn't using magic much anymore. He became a regular kind of superhero. So basically like the Jack Kirby Guardian. Who could fly. Who could fly. Yeah, kind of, a lot in that way. And, you know, it's amazing to me to realize that he was only around for four years. Mm-hmm. Four years in the Golden Age. That was it. Even though he seems like this, you know, golden age, you know, heroic thing that's been around forever. That was it. Now, you mentioned Showcase. Uh, a couple ones worth mentioning, specifically Showcase 55 and 56 were these team-ups with Our Man that came out in the 1960s that are very well regarded. Um, Got to mention First Issue Special that came out in 1975. First Issue Special number nine, which is basically like a tryout book. This was Marty Pasco and Walt Simonson's sort of, re- not reimagining, but updating of Dr. Fate. This changed Dr. Fate forever. It took him from being a background character that would appear once in a while to being a headliner. This is where the Egyptian iconography came in. It had never been in there before. This is where your onks first appeared, all this stuff. First, if, in First Issue Special number 9, it's probably one of the most reprinted Bronze Age comics I've seen. It's been reprinted a billion times because it's so good. Then a little bit later, Paul Levitz took a hand at it in 1978. Any, you might have heard of this comic, Secret Origins of Superheroes. I just might- read it a couple hours ago who reread that story. <laughs> which came out in January 1978. Paul Levitz and Joe Staten did Dr. Fate's origin of there. Wasn't a lot of major tweaks, but they made a few minor ones. Uh, if I remember correctly, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, I think that was probably the first time the Lords of Order were ever mentioned. Then you get um, these backups in the Flash comics, done by Marty Pasco and Keith Giffen. Issues 306 to 313, so that was like 1981 to 1982. That was sort of a continuation of the Marty Pasco walt Simonson storyline. It's pretty good. And there's a Dr. Fate trade paperback that's 
sort of like the Blue Devil one, it's been delayed. It might come out in March of 2016. We'll have to see. It was originally going to be December. It's called The Immortal Doctor Fate. It's going to collect that first issue special. It's going to collect these flashbacks. It's going to collect the, the, the miniseries you talked about where the mantle passed. So that should be great if it ever actually gets out. He also appeared in some DC Comics Presents, some Brave and the Bolds. You mentioned like the other Earth 2 books he was in. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run down real quick who the mantles were passed to. Uh, you mentioned the four-issue miniseries, Eric and Linda Strauss. It was a, a woman and her stepson, and they became Dr. Fate together and then fell in love, which is a little weird, but anyway. I finally read that miniseries just a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and I was like, wait a minute. I thought they were man and wife or lovers or something. It's like, wait. <laughs> oh, they, they get she, there. <laughs> mom, wait, how old is he? Wait, what, did, what the hell is going on here? So. And then in the ongoing, they die, and then they get reincarnated together as a couple. And but doesn't he die first? Like, it, it changes up because he dies first, and then... I think so. It's been a while since I've read it. But the ongoing was done by James Dematisse and Sean McManus, and I'll tell you what, that is some of McManus's best art mm-hmm. ever. It is stunning. Absolutely beautiful. And after that, it was, the book was taken over by William Esner Loeb's and a series of various artists. And at that point, the mantle passed again, this time back to Kent Nelson and Inza Nelson. However, for whatever reason, Kent was not able to become Dr. Fate, so Inza was Dr. Fate on her own. So we had a female Dr. Fate running around the DC Universe for a number of years. And that book, the sales figures, now this was around, uh, that ran from 88 to 92. The sales figures on that book, especially towards the end, were really, really low. And the way you can know that is because they actually published letters from me. I'm actually published in the back of a lot of those Dr. Fate ongoings by Bill Nestor Lopes. Uh, in fact, when I hung out with Kyle Benning, he actually had me autograph a couple issues that I had audit letters in, which I thought was hysterical. Because <laughs> he's a crazy man, that Kyle Benning. I mentioned uh, the first issue special by Marty Pascoe and Walt Simonson. Actually, Kyle and I got together on the Firewater podcast, plug, 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 to talk about that issue uh, back on issue uh, episode 129 of the Firewater podcast. And we had a I felt like it was a really fun conversation about the book. We both loved it so much and uh, just gushed and gushed and gushed about it. So if you want to hear more about that particular issue, hop on over there. Again, I know you don't want to listen much more, Ryan. That's why I'm talking so fast so Ryan doesn't get much in. There will be another link in the show notes. No, there won't. <laughs> Whatever. So you, get, you, you, get, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to leave that alone. So Inz is Dr. Fate for a while, right? Then something – I don't remember what happened. I think Inza and Kent die again. Um, and then – this is where the Zero Hour stuff comes in. And a new guy named Jared Stevens becomes the new incarnation of Fate. And he's called just Fate. He has a book called Fate for a number of years. And he then didn't it, get his postgraduate degree. Right. He didn't, yeah, he didn't get his doctorate. Oh, it gets worse. Uh, so Fate went for a number of issues. It got canceled. Then they did Book of Fate for a number of issues, and it didn't work out either. So from 1994 to 1998, this guy, Jared Stevens, was the, carried the mantle of Fate. Dude, check this out. Like the amulet Dr. Fate wears explodes and creates an onk scar on his eye. So the, uh, the, the, the amulet has become a scar on his eye. He uses the tattered Dr. Fate cloak to wrap around his arm because he's injured or something, and that's part of his power. And then he melts the helmet down to make da- a dagger and these onk-shaped darts. I am not making this crap up, okay? Now... Even if I didn't know anything about Zero Hour or when it was published. <laughs> from, Nathaniel, from every- Wayne's, Nathaniel Wayne's 90 cents is going off. <laughs> His sense is pinging. He's like, yep, I'm assuming that was circa 96, 97. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, exactly. yeah, it would have been a little bit earlier than that. But. At 94 to 98, but yeah. yeah. So then uh, Jeff Johns thankfully swept in. 
and tried to clean this up. In 1999, in the JSA book, they got rid of Jared Stevens and they introduced a new Doctor Fate. Through it was a, it was a very complicated origin, by the way, which involved Neil Gaiman Sandman, Hawk and Dove having a baby. And some other weird stuff, but who cares? Ignore all the origin part of it, because that was only an issue or two. After that, Hector Hall is reborn and grows to adulthood and becomes the new Dr. Fate. Hector Hall from Infinity, Inc., who was Silver Scarab previously, and Sandman after that becomes the new Dr. Fate. And that is the first time in a long time we had a Dr. Fate that felt like Dr. Fate. And that was Hawkman's son? Hawkman's son, exactly right. Kate, uh, Carter Hall's son. I almost said Katar Hall, sorry. Carter Hall's son, Hector Hall, became Dr. Fate. And he was Dr. Fate from 1999 to about 2005. Mm-hmm. So it was awesome. Now, in there, he had a miniseries, a five-issue miniseries, which I highly recommend. And uh, he also appeared in – there's another I, – I, I have a whole list of essential readings. He appeared also in JSA All-Stars number three. That was almost like a tryout book for different JSA people. Each, mm-hmm. each issue featured a different character. So I really recommend you pick these up. JSA All-Stars number three and then the Dr. Fate five-issue miniseries. You guys should definitely check those out. I, I usually ask for the recommendations at the end. I screwed that up. Sorry, Secret Admirers. I'm, I'm a little all over the place. I'm drinking a lot of Diet Mountain Dew tonight. So, all right. I know. You really want to get this, but I'm going to keep going. So, because there's more. <laughs> so, Hector Hall's Dr. Fate, right? Until, he dies. Yeah, he, he, he dies around in Days of Vengeance, around Infinite, in Infinite Crisis. And they do this Helmet of Fate miniseries where a bunch of people end up in possession of the Helmet of hate to tr- Fate to try and figure out who's going to be the new Dr. Fate. In fact, uh, Detective Chimp ends up with a helmet at one point. That's why I said a monkey. Then uh, after that, in 2007, so apparently this whole Helmet of Fate thing where the helmet was going around from person to person was building towards a new ongoing Dr. Fate series, which was going to be written by Steve Gerber. Well, unfortunately, things got delayed and sidetracked, so instead it became one half of the features in, this, in the Countdown to Mystery series, which went eight issues. Well, during that, Steve Gerber actually died and didn't finish writing it. So other people had to come in and finish that, conclude that story for him. And that version of Dr. Fate was named, believe it or not, Kent Nelson, but not the original Kent Nelson. This was Kent V. Nelson. It was like his nephew or something like that, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And while this felt like it was intended to be a return to the classic Dr. Fate, this guy was never very interesting. He was just kind of very blah. He was just kind of there. But he showed up in the uh, the Justice Society of America series for a while there. He was there till it closed out at the end of the post-crisis universe. So then Flashpoint happens, and then in the New 52, since then we've had two more versions of Dr. Fate. Uh, on Earth, there was the Earth 2 series by James Robinson. They introduced a guy named uh, Khalid Ben Hassan. Probably saying that wrong, I apologize. Created by James Robinson and Brett Booth. And he was an Egyptian gentleman, which was kind of cool to bring that sort of uh, you know, diversity into the book, but given mm-hmm. the Egyptian heritage. Mm-hmm. And the helmet would actually drive him insane when he wore it. And it was that was kind of an interesting take on the Earth 2 version of Dr. Fate. It was pretty cool. It's incredibly hard to draw. He did way too many lines on that character. <laughs> Brett, Brett Booth made it very difficult for people after him. Then, when they finished up with that and they went to the new DCU storyline, they have relaunched the book. There's a new Dr. Fate. I guess they're sort of ignoring the previous one. I'm not really sure. But it's Khalid Nassauer. So he's got the same first name, different last name. And the book is being written by Paul Levitz and being drawn by Sonny Liu, I think is how you say it. Mm-hmm. It's gotten a lot of crit- – it's, it's on the shelves right now. It's gotten a lot of critical acclaim. Uh, they're very focused on the story and the diversity he's uh, – uh, his family and things like that and his culture. I've read the first couple issues. It's not for me, but that's not to say it's not good. 
it just didn't really strike me very much. I like the the diversity angle. I like the fact that they're actually making him an Egyptian. I think that's a cool take. The idea of making the helmet kind of drive him mad feels like that was reminiscent of the only episode of Smallville that I ever watched, which was mm. the two-hour Justice Society episode. Right. Where Kent Nelson or whoever was, like, as an older man who had basically gone insane with age at the time, but putting on the helmet actually sort of restored him, at least for a time. So I was wondering if that, that was any... If were... They've done some different stuff. I mean, the, the helmet possesses Kent in the, mm-hmm. in the classic stuff. So it actually supplants his consciousness. So there's been a lot of stuff with the mental stuff with the helmet doing that. I think the first time the helmet ever scared the crap out of me was probably in Books of Magic, where they traveled to the future. Because they were taking, in Books of Magic, the original miniseries, they were taking Tim Hunter around mm-hmm. the DC mm-hmm. universe. And they went to the future. And Dr. Fate at that point was just a helmet, a cape, the amulet, and some gloves. <laughs> there was no body. And the helmet was just scary as crap in that thing, man. And I think that's the first time I, I, I started seeing the helmet as like a darker side. And once you see that and you look at modern day stories, you're like, ooh, it's still kind of dark and creepy, even though he's, you know, he's, he's helping people. He still took over Kent's life, you know. <laughs> I do want to answer one of your questions as far as like you, you or statements. You said something about it's hard to connect with Dr. Fate and his stories. Chris Franklin wrote in to us on our show when we were talking about Dr. Fate and really made a good point, which is they've created a really cool character. And they introduced him really – they did a lot of neat stuff with him and introduced him and made a big deal and launched an ongoing series with him. But they didn't give you the Dr. Fate that you know. They went with the Eric and Linda Strauss version. We've never – well, other than the Golden Age when he had an ongoing feature in more fun comics, we've never really gotten the continuing adventures of the classic Kent Nelson as Dr. Fate. And that's what I want. I want to read the classic adventures of the traditional, you know, iconic Dr. Fate. Well, I – I like his origin story, at least the idea behind it. So yeah, I do want to know more about this guy. But it seemed like after the crisis, they were in a rush to say, nope, that didn't work. That was a broken model that we had to fix. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it needed to. I haven't read the, the original, the Marty Pasco uh, miniseries. I've just read the, um, the Giffen, uh, Demetrius, Demetis, Dematis, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, so I read that one, and I just I, the story was almost impenetrable, and I am not a fan of Giffen's art during that era. So it's pretty dark. Yeah, uh, definitely pick up the Marty Pasco, uh, Walt Simonson one. It's reprinted a bunch of places. You can get it. It's it's in Deech, it's in the digests. It's in these three issue Baxter format reprint series. It's the old first issue special. It's been reprinted a bunch of places. I kind of got the impression that when I heard that they were going to be doing this uh, this upcoming collection that hopefully will come out within a couple months, it felt like they were doing that because of the buzz around the character that came out when they showed the helmet of fate in Constantine. Yeah. Like that was sort of their test, and everybody was like, "That was really cool. We need let's see Doctor Fate on the show and everything like that." And of course, we didn't. Um, right. But that seemed like it was it generated a lot of buzz around the character, and DC might have been saying, "Well, let's see, let's test some waters and see if they'll go back and buy some of these old stories." So you know, they've actually produced a prop for that helmet that you can buy and and wear, which is pretty <laughs> cool. And I've seen some cosplayers with Doctor Fate helmets, and they look totally boss. And it's interesting to see the way some of them will base it on different interpretations. Like I saw one based on kind of the Sean McManus. Dr. Fate helmet mm-hmm. from that series which was 
Cool. So you, you mentioned a couple uh, other media stuff. I'll just you might as well hit those since we're doing this. Uh, Doctor Fate's appeared in Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. I'm doing all this backwards. Normally, all this goes on the back end of your show, doesn't it? <laughs> I can I can potentially edit around this. But who knows? Nah. I don't care. I don't mind screwing up your show. So uh, Justice League, it's a favor. Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Batman Brave and the Bold. You mentioned Smallville, the Young Justice cartoon, and also the DC Nation shorts. I haven't seen this myself. Hmm. You mentioned Constantine. He's been in some video games like DC Universe Online, Injustice, uh, Gods Among Us, Lego 3, or Lego Batman 3. And he's got a zillion action figures. And I've got a few of those myself because he's just totally boss. So he's out there in other media. People are beginning to become aware of him. And part of it, again, some of it just comes down to that totally badass look. It's a, a lot of it's that helmet. Yeah. That's just a really slick helmet. And if you are a talented enough artist, you can tweak the look of the helmet to make it work for you. You know, in the New Frontier, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Who did New Frontier? Darwin Cook. Thank you. Wow. Darwin Cook did his own version of Dr. Fate in there. And, you know, he made it look like a Darwin Cook kind of thing. And it works. So even he made an action figure out of that, which looks great. It's similar to Iron Man's mask, where you can find cheats to make it more expressive, even though it shouldn't be. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We should probably do the comic, huh? Uh, Why bother? (laughs) I may say that by the end of it. All right. Well, would you mind taking us through the secret origin of Doctor Fate? Absolutely. Well, the secret origin of Doctor Fate is written by Roy Thomas, penciler Michael Bear. Inker Bob Downs, Juliana Ferriter, Ferriter, colorist, Helen Vesic, letterer, and Mark Wade. Mark Wade! Editorial consultant. This is the first issue that he worked on. Is it really? Yep. Oh, wow. And it does say, based on material by Dr. Fate's co-creators, Gardner Fox and Howard Sherman and others. And I'll touch on the and others in a bit here when we get to the end. So, this, this version of Dr. Fate's origin is actually narrated by Wotan. And Wotan is arguably Dr. Fate's primary foe. Wotan explains to the audience about Naboo, who is his foe. And Naboo is an ancient being, part of the Lords of Order, who are sworn to battle the forces of chaos. And Wotan, uh, Wotan, 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 Wotan clan, whatever you want to call him, he is not part of this chaos. He says he only serves his own wants, and he wishes to control and destroy all of humanity. He's a real right bastard. So then he tells us the origin of Dr. Fate. It starts off in 1940, where there's an archaeologist named Sven Nelson, and he brings his 12-year-old son, Kent, to go on an expedition to the area formerly known as Mesopotamia. There, they're rushing around to collect artifacts from the, from the archaeological dig before, quote-unquote, the war, meaning what would eventually be called World War II, reached the Middle East. Now, as they're exploring one of the tombs, young Kent stumbles across this frozen, st- what he thinks is a statue, but it's the body of Naboo. Who, he's an older-looking guy with a white hair and a white beard, and he's dressed in ancient Egyptian clothes, and he's frozen like a statue, but he's actually in suspended animation. Kent is then compelled by Naboo, psychically, to pull a hidden lever. This releases a poisonous gas, which awakens uh, Naboo from his suspended animation, but this gas also kills Kent's father. So Naboo's freed, and Kent is, you know, this 12-year-old kid is furious at Naboo for killing his dad. Naboo immediately puts the magical whammy on Kent, erasing all of Kent's grief and anger. Uh, He becomes sort of serene, and Naboo begins pumping all this magic and knowledge into Kent. Kent absorbs all of it, and suddenly he grows to adulthood. So he goes from a 12-year-old kid to a full-grown adult in just a matter of days. 
During this time, he's being imbued with magical powers. He, you know, he can do blasts. He can levitate things. He can change the molecular control of his own body. I don't even know what that means. He gets powers of the mind, all kinds of stuff. So after a few days, Nebu has one final task for Kent. Nebu uh, then returns all of Kent's grief and anger about the loss of his father, and Nebu commands Kent to strike him down. Well, Kent, feeling this incredible rage, lashes out with his magic and destroys Nabu. And left behind where Nabu's body was is this glowing sphere with all the swirly stuff around it. And this is Nabu's true form as a lord of order. He, uh, Nabu import, import, imparts a bunch more knowledge onto Kent and then gives Kent his classic blue and gold Dr. Fate uniform and the helmet of Nabu. And then you get this gorgeous big splash page of Dr. Fate. That, you know, it's just sort of like, yeah, hell yeah, that's what Dr. Fate is. Then we cut to what I'm going to call adventure number one. And I'll reference that a little bit later. We get into adventure number one. Nabu sends Dr. Fate into the desert of, where Alexandria was in Egypt. He tells Dr. Fate to find the, uh, this uh, windowless and doorless tower. And he says, you will find the, sing- the single secret worth having for a lifetime unending. Which is a really long phrase, which is sort of meaningless. But Dr. Fate gets there and he finds this beautiful young college student who's being held captive there. Her name's Inza Kramer. She's being held by the evil Wotan. And because Wotan can somehow sense that she has some sort of connection, uh, unknown con- connection to Dr. Fate. So you get a battle between Wotan and Dr. Fate. Wotan gets the upper hand. I mean, let's face it, this is the first time Dr. Fate's ever done anything in combat. So Wotan gets the upper hand, and he sort of collapses at the feet of Inza. And Inza is crying over Dr. Fate's prone form, and her tears drip down and land on Dr. Fate. And somehow this immediately reinvigorates him. He hops up, Marty McFly style, and zaps Wotan. And apparently now Dr. Fate is in complete command of all his powers. All because of love. Love equals magic, folks. I hate that crap. So, um, remember I told you that quote earlier that the single secret worth having for a lifetime of unending, whatever? Kent thinks that is referring to Inza in a romantic sense, meaning like they're to be together romantically. Turns out, this is a huge retcon, by the way, uh, instead, Nebu's actually been corrupted. Nebu himself, the, the being which lives inside the helmet, has been corrupted by his desire for control. He wants to control Dr. Fate. Because in truth, Dr. Fate was always intended to be the merging of a man and a woman together. So Kent and Inza Nelson were actually supposed to come together to become Dr. Fate, not just Kent. But Nabu wants to keep control for himself through the helmet, so he doesn't let Kent know that. I don't now think we- that's what Gardner Fox had in mind when he wrote this. Carter Fox did not have that in mind when he wrote that. Absolutely. <laughs> now we get to what I call adventure number two. That will become important again later. Uh, Wotan is now decides he wants to seek out Inza after Inza's been rescued by Dr. Fate because, he again, she know, he knows that she has some sort of unknown connection to Dr. Fate. She fi- he finds her at an American college. Wotan then controls this guy and sends him to kill Inza. Uh, Dr. F- she summons Dr. Fate by just simply saying his name. Dr. Fate appears. There's some wacky magic stuff that happens. And Fate and in all kinds of stuff I'm going to skip. Fate and Inza then track Wotan to his hidden citadel. There, Wotan commands his army of 5,000-year-old magical apes to attack Dr. Fate. Yes, you heard that correctly. Inza is then imbued by some of Fate's powers, and together they defeat these 5,000-year-old magical apes. Wotan and Dr. Fate battle each other with magical blasts and spells, and then Fate drains Wotan of his power and throws him out a window with the full intention of killing Wotan. That's how badass this guy is. Except there's no body that's found. Then we get to adventure number three. Again, remember that for later. Uh, we, then we get, quite honestly, this really bizarre and possibly unnecessary 
trip to the land of the dead. You think? <laughs> There's a reason to have it's in here though. They go to the land of dead to see if Wotan is in fact dead. Because, you know, you threw him out the window. We get to see all the traditional trappings of the, of the Land of the Dead stuff. You know, you see the River Styx, you see the boatmen, you see the Seven Gates leading to the region of the Dead Souls. And ultimately, they meet the entity that rules the Land of the Dead. And this entity informs that Wotan isn't dead. And then they're returned to Earth. So, in other words, there was no reason to do any of that. When they get back to Earth, they find that Wotan is using scientific devices now. Because, you know, he's a magic guy. Using scientific equipment to cause earthquakes. Since Dr. Fate has defeated Wotan, Wotan decides that his own life is no longer worth living and he's going to take the rest of the world with him. So he's planning to increase the magnetic flow between the poles, causing the entire planet to explode. So Dr. Fate senses all this plan and pretty much in one panel demolishes all of Wotan's devices and plans. Wotan then gets the – they have a little fight and Wotan gets the upper hand by threatening Inza's life. And he offers Dr. Fate a choice. He says, Dr. Fate, the girl or the helmet? You choose. So Dr. Fate removes the helmet, gives it to Wotan to save Inza, and as Wotan puts on the helmet, he's zapped in unconsciousness. The Lords of Order have safeguarded the helmet and knocked Wotan out big time. Wotan is then encased under the earth for punishment, like in a little jail kind of thing, or it's more like just laying on a bed, but whatever. Then Ken and Inza are returned to the surface world where Inza is finally gets a chance to rest while Dr. Fate contemplates their future, realizing their destinies are bound together. Wow. So. so. <laughs> you want me to tell you where all of this stuff comes from? Because it comes from a whole bunch of sources. Well, before you get to that, um, you did mention there are multiple adventures in here. Yes. He fights Wotan a whole bunch of times in the story. Yes. And we get the prelude to that, which is him with his dad dying and him becoming Dr. Fate, that whole thing, before he starts fighting Wotan. Yep. Like... This 19-page story could be expanded to a four- or five-issue miniseries, and you could not accuse it of being decompression storytelling. Well, it's because of all the sources. Yes. I mean, I'm telling you, it's uh, – I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this because it all – I'll come back to the origin part of it. But you've got, yes, the origin, which I'll, I'll source that in a moment. Then you get the first meeting with Wotan, which was the part where in the windowless tower where he has to go and rescue – uh, Inza, and he doesn't really know why. That comes actually from All-Star Squadron number 47, written by some guy named Roy Thomas and drawn by some guy named Todd McFarlane. So that story, the very first meeting of Wotan and Dr. Fate, was a retcon. That story, that, that story had never appeared until the 80s. Then the next story, where Wotan goes to America, and he, <laughs> Dr. Fate and Inza fight the magical apes, which was legit, actually was a Golden Age story. That was actually Dr. Fate's very first appearance. So that's more for, more fun comics number 55. Then, the very next issue, More Fun Comics number 56, is where they travel to the afterlife. So that's why Roy included it, because it was legitimately in the original run. Mm -hmm. They travel to the afterlife, and then that's when they battle Wotan's earthquake machine. So, in truth, it is three full comics. Plus, the original origin, which was told in More Fun, what, 67? Okay, so here we go. The original origin in More Fun 67, then there are slight alterations, well... Some significant alterations done to it in the first issue, special number nine, in 1975 by Marty Pascoe and Walt Simonson. You get a couple more minor tweaks in that one uh, Secret Origins of the Superheroes in 1978 by Paul Levins and Joe Staten. Then you get a few more tweaks in that Dr. Fate miniseries you read by J.M. DeMathis and Keith Giffen. And then you get even further origin tweaks in the All-Star Squadron number 47. So a lot of history to bring to us to this one comic. So what would you think of it? 
Well, <laughs> as we've mentioned uh, several times already, I really, really like the idea. The execution, I don't... He did not need to cram all of this in. Absolutely true. I mean, I, I, I know that he... Uh, you brought it up. He had already told Dr. Fate's origin like two years before this. Mm-hmm. If, if that, even. So he had already sort of redone this, and now he's revisiting his own new material that he's a little bit shoehorned. But really... Keep it simple, stupid. It's the basic formula. <laughs> Give us his dad dies, he becomes magical, he fights Wotan once. You want to read a better version of Dr. Fate's origin? I feel like I have. That uh, that uh, Paul Levitt's Joe Staten one was seven pages long, and I felt like it was it was better. You know what? The original Golden Age one is probably the best one out there. Okay. <laughs> it's great. It's it's straightforward. It's the art's clean. It's not overly complicated. It's nice. It's a really clean. Yeah. They don't have the Lords of Order and Chaos stuff in it, mm. but it's clean. It works. I would actually and I'm not a Golden Age comics guy. By the way, in the talking about recommendations, another one I want to recommend to you guys is the archive edition, the Golden Age Doctor Fate. Uh, it's a it's an archive book. It's huge. It's massive. This is this is one of the biggest ones they ever did, and it's not cheap. It normally retails for seventy five dollars, mm. but you can get it on in stock trades usually. You know, at a good chunk, usually half off things like that. I mean, it's three hundred and eighty eight pages of story, and it's gorgeous. And I, again, I'm not really a Golden Age comics kind of guy. I like I love the concepts behind them. Like I love All Star Squadron because I love those characters and the concepts. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time reading a lot of Golden Age stories. These are fun. Mm. These are great. They're, they're clean storytelling. There's sometimes wacky, crazy stuff that goes on, but you just go, eh, it's golden age, whatever. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy these. So I would recommend you pick that up. And the reprint of the original origin is in here, so it's worth getting. Now, I want to talk about the art for a second. Michael Bear. I like his art quite a bit. I really, really, really do like his art. I think his figure work is great. I love the way he interprets costumes. I think the looks are beautiful. Inza is smoking hot throughout this. However, his panel design and his layouts, the, the best word I could come up to describe them is rectangular. That was like my exact note. For being a story like about Dr. Fate when you're incorporating all of these things, it's so geometrical and so – and he's a guy who, like Perez, he, I mean some of, these, some of these pages have 15 panels on them. Mm-hmm. Dude. <laughs> If I ever complain about George Perez's art, which I do from time to time, now, I always have to mention this with the caveat. In terms of the line work and the figure design, the way George Perez draws characters, if I could get a custom sketch from any artist, living or dead, he would be my first choice. I've got a fire, custom Firestorm and custom Killer Frost by him. Awesome. But It is. But a lot of times his art is taken down a notch from me because of how much detail and how much he crams into a page and I want to let I want him to let the artwork breathe a little bit more and I feel like Michael Bear is doing a lot of that except some of these pages are crowded with art that's good but not I mean I'm looking at page 9 and the same page I'm on yeah he he's got Wotan in the center surrounded by 12 boxes just in the middle third of this page. He's surrounded by 12 boxes and they're just close-ups of 
people faces dressed in tuxedos and rep- repeated shots of the helmet. It's like, why is this this crowded? It's 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 very very detailed, and it's very very I think beautiful, without being dynamic. That's the best way I can put it. It's that's the biggest like curse I see of it is that it's just not dynamic. It's the best looking art that takes me out of the story. Okay. It's sure. uh, that's. I could see that. It's. He does fill his backgrounds up with a lot of lines too, unnecessary lines too. Mm-hmm. Like if you look on page ten, look at all the background lines. Mm-hmm. There's little like radar lines where she kicks somebody. There's hash marks. There's squiggly lines. There's vertical lines. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of just background stuff. Right. Now I, I mean, I was happy to have him back because I liked his work on the Golden Age Sandman and the Golden mm-hmm. Age Hourman origins before this. But maybe the story demanded a, an artist with a little bit more. A little bit more craziness, a little bit more... I don't know. And I, I say that, well, and I, I just mentioned that I did not like the way Keith Giffen interpreted the character. Which... Okay, well, wait a minute. There's, there's a middle ground, though, buddy. <laughs> I mean, come on. You're, you're going for the middle ground. Now you're talking about the two you know, crazy extremes. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I, again, I see, I'm, I'm not as far off you as you are. I like the art. I just wish it was dynamic. As yeah. you said, it needs a little more zany craziness. Because, again, you've got to read the Walt Simonson version. Uh, of the of that issue, that first issue, special number nine, because the art is balls to the wall crazy. You know, it's yeah. just the panels do crazy stuff, onks flying everywhere. It's gorgeous. It's a thing of beauty. I believe. Now, there's another thing I wanted to mention is because you know I like smoking hot women. Uh, Inza again. Did I mention she's smoking hot in this? You did. She's pretty much wearing lingerie through almost the whole thing. <laughs> now. I'm okay with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But I went back to the originals in the, in the archives, and I'm looking at it going, she's not wearing that at all. <laughs> she's wearing, it's kind of hard to describe. She's wearing a yellow one-piece outfit, but it's got pants legs. It's not the dress. It's got pants legs. So it's yellow one-piece. It goes all the way down. Pant legs comes up, short sleeve. It's got a big collar, and it's got these red bows on the front of it. And I started looking at it. And, and Roy Thomas would certainly know more about you know the 40s than me. I guess it's possible those were like 1940s silken pajamas, maybe. Okay. Because it's the same sort of thing happens. She's in her house, you know, hanging out when the guy mm-hmm. comes to choke her, um, which is not a euphemism, guys. Um, <laughs> so it, it could be that it's just those are pajamas in the 40s, and I just don't get that. And therefore, he drew her in pajamas, you know, slutty pajamas of the of the eighties. But uh, so, I don't know. It, she, she looks great, you know. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. So, I mentioned I think I like the original issues more. Honestly, okay. I, and I'm going to stop being kind. It's a little boring up to the part which is where. Where does the origin stop? Where uh, page? He does the origin in like four pages. Six, doesn't six pages? Well, I guess you could ignore the Wotan page one. Yeah. So you know, page two. To page six are glorious. Yes, they are. Then after that, it gets a little dull because it is. It's three separate adventures fighting Wotan. Who I as a villain, I, I think he's he himself also has a classic look. It's got the opposite color spe- color scheme of Doctor Fate, so it's cool. I like seeing them fighting each other, but Wotan himself isn't necessarily interesting enough for me to want to see him fought three times in the same story. <laughs> And when you have two magical beings fighting each other and they're just casting random spells at each other where it's just like crap flies back and forth, mm-hmm. it, it loses a little bit of excitement because you don't really understand what they're blasting at each other. You don't know why one blast is more powerful than the other. 
I also, I don't know why Wotan had to be the narrator for this, because he doesn't really give us any insight, nor is it, he doesn't really fulfill what you would want from an unreliable narrator that's obviously biased. It's just, it's, I think it's just Roy just wanted to break it up because, like, he had already told the story, so he was trying for something a little bit different. Well, I think he also wanted to hint at this thing where, uh, you know, Wotan escapes later thanks to Spectre and Zatanna. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where that's from. Maybe that's the Swamp Thing story. I, I, I cannot remember off the top of my head. Or maybe that's the uh, a JLA story or uh, Infinity Inc. I don't recall. Uh, I knew it at one point, but I've forgotten now. But you know what? We don't need to belabor it. So uh, I'm going to just touch back on recommendations. Again, I, I've beaten the hell out of the first issue special number nine by Walt Simonson and Marty Pasco. You really need to get that, guys. JSA All-Stars number three. The five-issue Dr. Fate miniseries from 2003. I suggest you get the Golden Age Dr. Fate Archives Edition, Volume 1. Then, um, you know what? You should try it. You should try the four-issue miniseries you talked about with Dr. Fate, with Demetis and Giffen. If, if you're into Dr. Fate at that point, give it a shot. It's a nice, complete story where you start with one Dr. Fate and end with another one. It's an interesting transition. And I would say the monthly book of Dr. Fate, even though it doesn't feature my you know, iconic Dr. Fate that I want, the first 24 issues by Dimitis and Sean McManus do make a very nice sort of religious story without beating you over the head with religion. Um, and I'm not a religious guy, per se, so it's, it still has a – because it deals with reincarnation and things like that. It's more spiritual. That's probably the word. Mystic, mystical and spiritual is probably the way to put it, not religious. And uh, it makes a very nice story. I was crying by the end of issue 24. It was powerful. So those are some good Dr. Fates. Check it out. All right. So the big issue with this character that I need to address is... The shoulder pads? No. <laughs> no. It's Naboo. Ah, okay. Because I don't, get I don't, into it. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this character. Like... Depends on the era you're reading. Well, uh, let's let's start with this one because within this story, Naboo is responsible for Kent's father's death in a way, but also makes Kent the agent of his own father's death, and then strips away his ability to grieve, and then really without the the child's consent or understanding gives him all of this knowledge, like it rapidly ages him, makes him this agent, and then. Does how much of Doctor Fate is Kent Nelson and how much is Naboo is what I don't understand mm-hmm. because the answer to that is actually going to inform I think whether or not I like this character. Okay, well, in, in going back to the original origin in the 1940s, you know Kent does release Naboo, you know he's psychically sort of commanded to, and his dad does die. However, if I understand this right, um. There wasn't any malice there. Nebu says when these chambers were built, a poison gas was prepared so that any who knew not the secret of the chamber was sure to die. I will try to repay you for your loss by teaching you the secrets of the universe. And then Kent actually stayed there with Nebu for like 20 years. So there was no malice there originally. And the whole idea that the consciousness supplanted Kent uh, and took him over didn't come about till the 70s. That, that wasn't there for the first 30 years. Okay. So up to that point, Naboo was a benevolent being who taught Kent how to become Dr. Fate, and that's really about it. He was not a part of the series after that. So essentially the wizard from Captain Marvel and Shazam. 
yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. But then you get into the 1970s and they wanted a little more drama. And they introduced this idea that when Dr. Fate put on the helmet, he became someone else entirely. Someone and like if, Firestorm and Professor Stein. Nah, not exactly. Because, I mean, Firestorm's still pretty much Ronnie mm-hmm. when they merge. This is a completely different consciousness. And this would be, this was introduced, if I remember correctly, was in that, again, I keep saying it, first issue special by Pascal and, and Walt Simonson. They, they put the, that's when they added that element that when he puts the helmet on, he becomes a completely different being. The helmet takes over him, which actually creates a really great drama between Kent and Inza because Inza is his wife at that point, and she's sick of it. She is sick of Dr. Fate taking away her husband. Mm-hmm. She's had enough, and she actually walks out on him at one point in the story. And it, it's a little bit bitchy, but it, it definitely adds some drama. And I, I agree with her. She's, she's stuck in this a windowless tower all day long, and her husband gets taken from her every so often. So it creates drama that the helmet puts it on. And then I think it's um, I, I think it was then in the Paul Levitt's one, which is where they said the spirit in the helmet was Naboo. Because they didn't initially say the spirit in the helmet was Naboo. They just said it was Dr. Fate. So that's about the point where, where – about 1978 is about the point where the, the spirit of the helmet becomes Naboo taking him over. Then it's a little bit dickish because Naboo – but Naboo's being driven though by the greater good at that point. Naboo wants to help people and therefore that's why Dr. Fate has to exist and that's why Kent continually puts the helmet on. So while Naboo is a bit dickish, it's for the greater good. Now, put on the brakes right when you get to the Keith Giffen miniseries though. When you get to the Keith Giffen miniseries right after Justice League International, that's where Naboo becomes a complete asshole. That's where you find out that he's been, been you know, Naboo's been manipulating him. That's when you find out Dr. Fate was supposed to be a man and a woman merged together. That's where, uh, actually in the ongoing series, let's see what happens. Uh, Kent dies and Naboo leaves the helmet and actually goes into Kent's dead corpse. So Kent is a dead corpse walking around with Naboo in him. And Nebu is a complete jerk through the whole series, which is actually kind of funny. It works well. It plays well. But he's a complete jerk through the whole thing. And Nebu pretty much remains a real jerk throughout history from then on. I wonder how much of that is just the product of the times, because just the previous episode I was talking to Chad and Mark about the, the evolution of the Guardians and how they went from this benevolent source of wisdom and information to these creepy little bastards who were lying about their and trying to cover up their own sins and it seems like uh, as, as the decades progressed DC sort of grew up and realized that all of their older authority figures were all selfish bastards what do you think about the 60s and the 70s it was yeah. rebelling against establishment right, right. And the, you po- know, so. the whole post Watergate thing so yeah if Kent puts on the helmet and basically ceases to be Kent, if yes. there really is another personality driving Dr. Fate, I don't like that. Then I think it, it, it kind of loses the, the human connection that makes me invest in the character because then it's like, is, is what Kent does heroic and noble or is he just a vessel? Is he just a body? Could it be anybody? And then, it, then it, does it even matter if you've had seven different people over the uh, in a course of fifteen years be the the body for Doctor Fate? Because is it that interchangeable? Can anybody put on the helmet and be that character? Well, most of the inter- incarnations afterwards, because they were screwing around with things so much, very rarely was Naboo in charge. Uh, it wasn't really until Hector Hall 
was back that he became a regular thing where he put the helmet on and Naboo was at that point Naboo was more like an onboard advisor more like a firestorm sort of thing where Naboo would advise Hector Hall whereas with Kent you know Naboo supplanted his consciousness um you know what uh, god I, I, you might as well just put this on a recurring reoccurring loop first issue special um they actually do a good story in there where what happens is Kent comes home he's exhausted he takes off the helmet right and he, then as Kent, he goes upstairs to his, his study and pours over textbooks and tomes studying the threat that he's up against, which is Kalos, this mummy. And so it's Kent doing that, not Dr. Fate. Kent spends all this time studying so he can know more about the enemy and be prepared to fight him. So Kent is doing this sort of work and effort, and you get to know Kent as a character. And even though he's exhausted, he still puts on the helmet later because he knows they've got to fight the bad guy. And he's sort of sacrificing his own marriage. So, well, when he's Dr. Fate, he's a prick. You still root for Kent. And and, and he's also – he's a bit of a prick, but in – he's – I don't know. Like he's the he's the he's the guy you love to hate. Maybe is the way to put it. I don't know. He's still a hero. You're still rooting for Doctor Fate when he's fighting the bad guy. Because when he's fighting the bad guy, that's his mission. That's what he's there for is to stop the bad guy. So you still root for him, even though you may not like him so much. Maybe kind of Guy Gardner in his dickish years. You know, you you never rooted for Guy except in a fight because you wanted him to beat up the bad guy. Uh, unless you're you know maybe Sean Engel or someone like that. Uh, so Doctor Fate. Was well, that seems like it might have almost been an influence of Doctor Strange with his arrogance and kind of prickishness. Well, I don't know. I mean, because keep in mind, this version, this type of storytelling with Doctor Fate didn't come about until 1975. So that would have been after Doctor Strange, because I mean, right. he, from his earliest incarnations, he was a selfish bastard before he got his magical powers. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, Doctor Strange was a big influence on the re-envisioning of Doctor Fate. Uh, there's a, I mentioned back issue earlier, there's also a fantastic back issue article, I've actually read this thing several times, with Marty Pascoe and Walt Simonson about that first issue special. It's a great article. Mm-hmm. And they talk about, Walt Simonson talks about the whole Egyptian iconography, that in the early Doctor Strange issues drawn by Steve Ditko, Steve Ditko apparently created, and I've never read these, but he apparently created a, a magical language of sorts in the artwork. Hmm. Like the, 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 the magic effects, he said, were almost a language. Hmm. They communicated what they needed to communicate in the magic, which was just visually astounding, they said. Or maybe they called it visual shorthand. I don't remember what, they, what the terms were, but they said the artwork told the story. And that's what he wanted to do for Dr. Fate. And that's where the, the Egyptian stuff came in and how to display that rather than just drawing an ankh. You know, he would draw a shield and it would be made up of ankhs or there'd be a giant ankh or, you know, whatever. The ankhs told the story of what the magic was doing. He didn't have to put it, you know, in the text saying, I will create the shield of blah, 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 you know, or whatever. So, uh, Doctor Strange played an influence on Doctor Fate. Hmm. All right. Well, any final thoughts on the character? In his iconic form, which is, again, that version from the 70s where the, the Nabu consciousness supplants Kent and then you've got the strife with Ken and Inza. That's your purest Dr. Fate. That's your iconic version of Dr. Fate. That's the one that's fantastic, and that's the one I wish we would see today. And he's really, really boss. He's great. Check out even those JSA issues with uh, Jeff Johns that wrote where you get Hector Hall as Dr. Fate because that's a close to an iconic version with modern storytelling, and it's a, it's a blast. Well, then my recommendation will be, I think, the only Dr. Fate story that you haven't mentioned so far. 
<laughs> um, this is actually going back only a couple of years. I don't know how many people remember, but uh, J. Michael Straczynski did a short run on The Brave and the Bold in the mid-2000s. Mm. Now, a lot of what J. Michael Straczynski has done in DC Comics is not well-liked. <laughs> But his issues of The Brave and the Bold, pound for pound, were fantastic. Yes. And one of the best issues, I think, was an issue that partnered Dr. Fate with Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. Because it was all about this idea of fate versus will. I I think Hal is dying. He's basically poisoned. He doesn't have enough time to get himself to safety. And fate is saying, yeah, you're going to die. And Hal's like, no, I don't accept that. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to will myself out of that. That's my whole shtick, is willpower. And Fate's like, nope, you're going to die. And they basically kind of come to heads over this. And it's, it's just a great little philosophical, really interesting story. Um, I recommend that. I recommend that whole series. I mean, the, the Aquaman, Etrigan, the Demon story was fantastic. There's a Batgirl, Zatanna, Wonder Woman issue that's great. It is a lot of fun. It's yeah. a lot of fun, that series. And, you know, that Dr. Fate one was interesting. They had to reach back and pull an iconic version of Dr. Fate for that story to work. Because yeah. at that point, Dr. Fate was not in his iconic form. So if I remember right... Like some echo of Doctor, a previous Doctor Fate adventure with Green Lantern comes out of his ring or something like that. But basically, they go through this kind of shenanigans to give you the iconic Doctor Fate for that story. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, because you know what? That's the Doctor Fate you need to tell stories about. Right, right. All right. Well, Shag, thank you very much for being on the show again. Where, oh, where? Because you haven't mentioned your own show enough. <laughs> where can our listeners find you again? Uh, the Fire and Water Podcast, uh, firestormfan.com. If you want to find all this Blue Devil stuff, go over to onceuponageek.com and look for Blue Devil. Got to warn you, there's some funky navigation issues. It's an older temp- WordPress template that doesn't like newer versions of WordPress, so it, the navigation might be a little wonky, but it's all out there. So just go find me there. I'm out on the social medias. You can also find me on Dead Both and Spies and uh, like a bunch of other stupid places where Brian hangs out. I mean, Ryan, whatever your name is. You know what I like about the fact that like every time you, you share one of my posts or do something, you include that little Brian joke where you still link me, but you put in the B? is because I figure if that's showing up on my timeline, like 75% of the people who are reading that think you're just stupid and misspelling my name. <laughs> With a capital B and a capital R. Yeah. They, they, they're not in on the joke. They don't realize you're doing that on purpose. They're just like, who's this moron who doesn't know Ryan's name? I'm just being a dick. <laughs> you know where it all stems from, right? Uh, is it my fault? Yeah, it's your fault, buddy. <laughs> your very first Secret Origins podcast trailer. You say, you know, you talk oh, about all these right. great guests you're going to have. And you say, Rob Kelly. And then you put me as a sound bite. <laughs> That's right. That's, oh, I know. And so many people are like, uh, did you mean to do that? Because you got, and, and I would like, sometimes I was like, yeah, of course I meant to do that. But like a few, like, Maybe like Aaron Moss, like it messaged me. He's like, "Hey man, I don't know if you know this, but you said Rob Kelly, but you used Shag's audio." And I was like, "Wait, which one is which?" <laughs> and he was—he thought I was serious. He's like, "Oh, do you not know which one is voice is which?" Do you know how much you just pissed off Rob saying that? <laughs> it's okay. He probably turned it off an hour ago when I didn't get to the story of Blue Devil. I mean, Doctor Fate. <laughs> Well, I appreciate being on the show. I I love the Secret Origins podcast. I really love the series. I have a lot of passion for it. I always enjoy coming back. I think this is my third one now. You know, all I can say is please have me back soon, and then your listeners will be even more unhappy. (laughs) 
I'll have you back just to punish the listeners. Perfect. But thank you very much for being on the show again. <laughs> Good night, Secret Admirers. One more time, I want to thank my guests, Justin Barlow and the Irredeemable Shag, for their appearance on this episode. And of course, a heartfelt rest in peace, David Sopko. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Yeah, well, I ran down to the levee, but the devil caught me there. Took my $20 bill And he vanished in the air Said I'm running but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine If I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep I spend my life in jail yeah, I got a wife in Chino, baby And one in Cherokee and the first one says she got my child But it don't look like me Sit out running but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine If I get home before day Get some sleep tonight Oh,
friend of mine If I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep tonight